The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Thank you very much, Jerry. Good to see you here on Friday. And uh, as Jerry said, it's the first Friday of the semester. And uh, this is probably our biggest attendance that we'll ever have at chapel on uh, on a Friday. Uh, First Friday means something else in Philadelphia. If some of you are new to Philadelphia, you know that First Friday, that's the first Friday of every month, many of the art museums and um, art galleries in Philadelphia are open, and I believe many of them are free uh, on a Friday, Friday afternoon, Friday evening. It's uh, one of those things you ought to do. And of course, you know that the Philadelphia Museum of Art is virtually free on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, they invite uh, you to make a contribution as you go in, but it's not compulsory. And if you have any Scottish, Dutch, or any other kind of blood in your veins that is reluctant to part with your money, that's uh, a good time to go. <clears throat> Let's read uh, today from the Psalms, and it's Psalm number 111, the 111th Psalm. <clears throat> Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen. May God bless to us this reading of his truth. I know that uh, some of you in the providence of God plan to be involved in the ministry and work of planting new churches. And one of the exciting and I think probably less exacting tasks in that ministry will be deciding upon a name for your new congregation. If you do a survey of conservative Presbyterian congregations or church names, you'll find that a great number of them give prominence to their theological or their doctrinal commitment. So all across the country, 
There are churches called Covenant Presbyterian Church or Trinity Presbyterian Church or even Westminster Presbyterian Church. But others choose a name that comes from the realm of Christian experience rather than the realm of Christian belief or doctrine. And they go for names like New Life or Living Hope or New Song. And that's a very interesting kind of distinction which often is a very useful indicator of the direction and the focus of a congregation. If you ask a sociologist about possible names for a congregation, then near the top of their list, they would certainly include the word community. Apparently, community is a very good name to use in a congregation's title because it denotes something warm, something attractive, something appealing in a world of division in a world of separation, in a world of fragmentation, which is so often the pattern of human existence, people are looking for a community where they can belong, where they can be welcomed, where they can be accepted. And if that's true of a church, then it ought also to be true of a seminary. We need to ensure that we're not just isolated individuals who come and go from this campus and who never really develop any kind of connection to one another. It's very easy for that to happen. And I think that's why we need to think carefully about what it means to study and to work together. And in order to avoid some nebulous, amorphous, touchy-feely idea about community, we do well to give the concept some substance, particularly biblical uh, and theological content and substance. And Psalm 111, seems to me, gives us some clues or markers about what community ought to look like. And not surprisingly, the very first feature of community life is that this psalm points to is that of worship. It is a psalm after all. But it's worth noting it begins with a plural verb. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Worship is something that we're called upon to do together. And the individual worship of the psalmist is set in the context of the worshiping community. You know how it is that personal individual worship is important. It's important that you and I as individuals give thanks to the Lord. It's important that we do it enthusiastically and energetically. We need to be active and engaged as worshipers. But individual worship should not stand alone or isolate it. Rather, it feeds into the corporate worship of the community of faith. And one of the primary features of a community of faith is that they worship together. In fact, we might say that worship is the framework. Worship is the heart. Worship is the key to what the church is and to what the church does as a community. And you would expect someone responsible for teaching the worship course here to say that kind of thing. But it's true. As our confession puts it, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. One of the privileges of being here at seminary is this daily time of corporate worship. When for these few minutes, as a community, we can refocus again on the Lord. We can lift our hearts to him 
in prayer and praise and worship. And you ought not to ignore that opportunity. I've already joked about it, but the pattern of chapel attendance is pretty easy to predict around here. For the first month, the attendance is pretty good. But once the papers and the tests and the quizzes begin to kick in, then the attendance drops off, and that's really rather sad. Because it seems the more work we have to do, the less time we have for worship. When in fact, the opposite ought to be the case. The more work, the greater our dependence on the Lord. And that dependence should be expressed as we gather together to seek his help and to strengthen and to encourage ourselves in him. But this psalm gives another dimension to our life together, which is particularly relevant to us as a seminary. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. In the common life of the seminary, the feeding of the mind probably occupies more time than any other activity apart from sleep. And sometimes those two activities have a way of coinciding and overlapping. But fundamentally, we are in the business of studying or pondering or reflecting on the great works of the Lord. And the psalmist tells us the great works of the Lord are all the great acts which God has performed in Israel's story. And the psalm goes on to recall the way God brought the people out of Egypt, the way he revealed himself to them at Sinai, the way they they knew God's provision in the wilderness, and the way God gave them the land of Canaan. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight or all who have pleasure in them. And one of the reasons why people study theology is because they have become people who delight in what God has done. And they want to find out more. They want to ask hard questions about something that really matters to them. And of course, we read verse 2 from our New Covenant perspective, and we understand that if the Old Covenant believers had reason to say that the works of the Lord were great, then we have even more reason to say that, because all that was promised All that was revealed in shadow and type and symbol has been fulfilled and brought to reality in our great Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And what the Old Testament saint could only look forward to, what the Old Testament saint could only anticipate, we have seen and experienced in the coming of Christ and in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And from our perspective, the works of the Lord are even greater and more wonderful than they were for an Old Testament believer. That means that if they could be studied by all those who delighted in them in the psalmist times, then how much more should we today not rejoice as we study and reflect on all that God has accomplished in Christ? We have much cause to delight in the great things that the Lord has done. He has fulfilled all that he has promised through his servants, the prophets. Christ has entered our world as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. He has finished the work which his father gave him to do. He has been obedient to death, even death on the cross. And he has risen again, triumphant and victorious, as the firstborn of a whole new humanity. And he has ascended to the father's right hand, where he has been installed as Lord and King. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, said his father. And there he reigns in glory and might and power and authority. 
And the day will come when he will be revealed in unsurpassed majesty. And all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And you and I have this opportunity of spending our days here reflecting together and rejoicing together in all that God has accomplished in Christ. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, there are some obvious points of application from this. And the first is that this reflection and this study and this delight takes place in community. The verb is plural. We engage in this together. One aspect of Western individualism is that we have made education and study a highly individualistic activity. For many of us, a course of study involves hours and hours alone with the books, writing papers, preparing for exams, and we closet ourselves away in quietness and in isolation so that we can study and learn and read and that's an important aspect of our work. But this psalm is pointing us to the benefit and to the blessing of undertaking that task in community with others. And one of the most enriching parts of life here at Westminster is the opportunity to get alongside people from different countries and from different communities. As one of our colleagues in the faculty says, education is who you go to school with. And he's pointing to the learning experiences which arise from contacts and conversations which one has outside of the classroom, as well as the formal teaching that goes on inside the classroom. Even our accreditors recognize the importance of that, and they include in the standards of every accredited seminary in the country to have the goal of creating a community of learning. It's important that we learn from each other as together we ponder and study the great works of the Lord. Big question for some of us in the administration is, can you learn from listening to a set of audio tapes on your own as you travel in the car? Well, of course you can. But how much more enriching it is to sit together in class and then to be able to converse afterwards so that the truth the professor is talking about in class is reflected upon and is processed as you meet together with your colleagues. I suppose every student who has studied here has their own memory of life at this seminary. I remember lunch times down in the cafe, which wasn't really a cafe in the 1970s, and uh, sitting with the same three or four fellows there each day discussing our work solving the problems of the church and of the world and learning from each other's Christian experience. I remember us making the discovery one day that all four of us around the table had been significantly influenced in our spiritual lives by the ministry of Pentecostal churches. Do I hear an amen anywhere? That some of the best Presbyterians used to be Pentecostals? And if you haven't done so already... You ought to ask those sitting around you in class to tell you their story. How did you come to be at Westminster? What can you tell me about your experience of God's grace in your life? In what ways could the truth that the professor was dealing with today apply to your community or your situation? And their answers and their stories will enrich you and they will give you reason to thank the Lord. Don't be reluctant or don't be afraid to form a study group to work together on aspects of your courses together. 
It can be very enriching. It can be a great learning experience. And there may be more than an explicit hint of that, a more explicit hint of that feature of interaction and conversation, even in verse 1 here. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And it's a word that can be used in giving thanks for something that God has done for you personally. It's really a word we could use for giving your testimony. And there is the assumption that when you talk about giving thanks to the Lord, that it's because God has brought you through some tough experience and that he has brought you out on the other side. And within this community here at Westminster, there are many stories like that, stories of deliverance and rescue and provision and guidance. And you can see then how the telling of our stories feeds back into the giving of thanks and worship. What a great God we serve. In regions of the world we have never heard of or never thought of, God has been at work in the hearts of his people and he has led them and he has guided them and he has brought us together at this place. There's one other feature of community life that's evident in Psalm 111. It's obedience. Dr. Riken eloquently pointed to this yesterday. That the Israelites lived by the Lord's precepts. Verse 7, all his precepts are trustworthy. They lived in the environment of covenant faithfulness and loyalty. Verse 9, he has commanded his covenant forever. And because of their fear and reverence and awe of the Lord, they knew that obedience to his wisdom was the basis and the key for good understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 10, all those who practice it have a good understanding. Isn't that an interesting and amazing connection? Not all those who memorize it have a good understanding. Not all those who write a really good paper on it have a good understanding. Not all those who get a grade A in the exam have a good understanding. Rather, all those who practice it have a good understanding. There's a myth out there somewhere that if you want to be a really good, practical pastor, you shouldn't go to Westminster Seminary. If you want to do further study, if you want to become a seminary or a college teacher, then possibly Westminster's the place for you because it's for academic types. It's for eggheads. It's for people who want to ask the really hard theological questions. But it's got nothing to do with real life or the real world. Now, what I want to do is to take that idea of a dichotomy between theology and practical Christian living and hit it for six. That's a cricketing term. If you don't understand it, uh, Dr. Green will exegete it for you. Or to use a dynamic equivalent, I want to hit that ball out of the park and so that nobody will ever throw it back in again. It's completely illegitimate to set knowledge of God over against obedience to God. If you're new to Westminster, then I hope that's a lesson that you learn early on. This basic fundamental idea that all knowledge is covenantal. We don't really know the truth until we live the truth. We don't really know the Lord or his wisdom until we practice it or do it. And the more we do it, the more we live it, the more our understanding of God and of his truth increases. I have to say to you, friends, that's an area where I am continually challenged and have been 
significantly challenged this summer and these past few weeks. But you know, that's why this place exists. Not so that you will become more knowledgeable in some purely intellectual sense. Not so that you'll read books and write papers and know about weak verbs and participles and the subjunctive mood. But so that you will become like the one who is wisdom himself, Jesus Christ our Lord. Your life and your heart, my life and my heart, needs to be changed and transformed by the truths that we study here together. And in his providence, God has brought us together here for that purpose. What a weird and strange and eccentric group we are as faculty, administrators, and students together. If you're a bit of a misfit, an eccentric, a marginalized or misunderstood person, then welcome to Westminster. Join the party. You belong here. Because that's what we are. Sinners who fail. Sinners who need daily supplies of divine grace. Sinners who are slow learners in the school of Christ. But there's something about this community that is designed by God so that we may all together be changed and become more obedient to him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, keep our hearts humble and pliable in your hands. Teach us constantly the implications of the great truths that we handle and speak of together. Bless my brothers and sisters, O Lord, as they go about the tasks and the duties before them in this new session of study. Bless every member of our faculty. Bless every student. Bless every member of staff and administration. O Lord, deliver us from merely talking about the truth and not practicing it. Write your word upon our hearts so that all the praise and all the honor and all the glory may be yours. Through Jesus Christ we pray.